following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good morning. I'm Vince. If you don't know that, I'm one of the pastors here at Love City Church and uh, so thankful for the opportunity to worship with you today. I do a, a fair amount of the Bible teaching here and that's what I have stepped up to do now. So uh, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter one. We're going to finish out the chapter verses 11 through 24 today. Uh, so I gave you the verse and, and, and I hope that you're there. Some of you uh, may not know, but October 31st is not just Halloween-y, uh, it is also Reformation Day. And so maybe not everybody has heard that or knows what that is, but let me just kind of give you a quick rundown, and it's going to tie into where we're at in the verses today as well. So uh, Reformation Day is a, is a, it's a recognition, uh, celebration even of the day that Martin Luther uh, a German monk nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517. And uh, it was basically a challenge, 95 numbered notations, basically. It was a challenge to the church at the time to abandon unbiblical teachings and return to the true gospel. And especially in view at that moment was the idea or the practice of an indulgences. And so there was building projects happening uh, throughout the the, you know, <clears throat> the church was trying to get some stuff built at that time, and, and there was even this idea kind of floated around that like when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so that ticked Martin Luther off, <laughs> Martin Luther off and uh, obviously, you know, it should probably tick us off too. Basically, if I, if I came in here today and I said, hey, everybody, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take up an offering, and if you give in the offering, I'll sign a piece of paper that says you can get out of purgatory or get a relative that's dead out of purgatory. Hopefully, most of you would promptly stand up and exit out the front doors, right? Like, <laughs> please do that, amen? Um, <laughs> if I ever try that, that means I have lost my mind, okay? Uh, let, me, let me read you just a couple of these 95 theses. This is number 27. Uh, it, it says this, they that preach... They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Number 32, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgences, indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Okay, Martin Luther was, you know, he was just telling it what, like it was. Uh, number 36, any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without indulgence letters. Okay, so that's just three of Martin Luther's 95 theses to give you a little bit of a flavor. You can go read those later if you'd like. But I, I, I'm bringing this up today because of a couple of reasons. Normally, there's like six to eight years, depending on how the calendar works, between times when October 31st falls on a Sunday and so that we would be gathered here like this on a Reformation Day. And also, this is an important piece of church history that I think you should be aware of. But also, I'm bringing it up because of that, but also because if you were here last week, you know that Paul came at false teachers of his day with some similar energy, okay? Uh, he, he said that anyone, okay, we read this last week, anyone, including himself or angels, 
who preached a different gospel than the one he had already given the Galatians should be accursed. And then he said it again in case they didn't hear him. Okay? So that... The, the, the spirit with which Martin Luther came and nailed those 95 theses, there's, there's an echo of that, uh, kind of a forward echo of Paul's attitude towards false teaching uh, here in the book of Galatians. So I see a tie in there. <clears throat> uh, this week, he's going to continue in that line of argumentation. He made some big, bold statements, and now he's going to give reasons to back those up, Right? To say, anybody that comes preaching any gospel other than the one we already preached to you is to be accursed. That's a big, bold statement. And now he's going to start to defend it, okay? He is contending that there's one true gospel. It is the bad news that sin leads to death and that we are all sinners, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, through faith in him. Martin Luther was arguing that salvation cannot come by paying uh, or slips of paper signed by a pope. Paul is arguing that salvation does not come by adhering to Jewish law. There was a group, I, I explained this last week, but in case you're just coming in, I want to make sure you've got the context. There was a group in the time of the writing of Galatians known as the Judaizers, and they were teaching that in order to follow Jesus, you had to also follow Old Testament law. You needed to be circumcised. You needed to follow all of the dietary restrictions uh, that they did in order to be a true Christ follower. And uh, Paul comes through the door in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 with both barrels and tells them twice that anyone teaching these things or any other variant false gospel should be cursed. And here's the question I want us to think about before we go into the verses for today. Where does Paul pivot first? So he's made these bold, audacious claims, but where does he pivot first to begin to defend the fact that he can talk like this? Because there could be some to hear what Paul's saying and go, Paul, you're talking a little crazy, okay? What's up? Well, why? Why is he so confident to be able to talk like that? I want to show you that he lays out his testimony of how Jesus saved him and what he saved him from. The first place Paul goes to back up these big, bold claims is to appeal to his testimony, how he was saved, what Jesus saved him from. So let's read Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24 together. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. That's Peter, by the way. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God 
because of me. Praise God for his word. Amen. So here's here's where we're going to approach this. We're going to break these 13 verses down into two big parts for the sake of our study today. So verses 11 through the first half of 16, and then 16 through the rest, okay? So 11 and 12, if we start back where we started, uh, it's another bold statement from Paul. Paul is saying here, he did not receive the gospel from other apostles or other disciples of Jesus, but from Jesus himself. Okay, it's another big statement. This is important because, remember, he is still making the argument. This, we, you know, we've had a break in between our reading here, but we're, we're still in the same flow of thought as last week. He, what he's doing is he's making an argument that there is only one true gospel by which men and women can be saved. This is the point he's making. And, as he already said in the verses we read last week, to reject this gospel is to reject God himself. That's what he, when he started off with, hey, I'm, I'm surprised, I can't believe that so soon you're being drawn away to, to abandon the one who called you by Christ, right? He makes this connection between the gospel of God and God himself. So he's putting this message, this gospel, on, on a pretty high pedestal, right? And he's saying, I got it from Jesus himself. And then he references the story of his conversion from a persecutor of those who followed Jesus to a preacher of the good news about him. And I think it's very important for us this morning, we need to put our eyes on this because as Paul appeals to his testimony, it's short here because he's assuming his readers know the story well, right? He says, you've heard about my former conduct, <laughs> Right? That's because he had planted this church. He had probably shared this story many times, and so these people should have been well acquainted with the details. I want to make sure we are, because it's important okay, for us to be able to actually navigate this text properly and, and engage with it properly. So if you would do this, I know I don't normally have you do this in the middle of a sermon, but if you can keep your finger here, or if you've got one of these nifty ribbon dividers in your Bible, I'm a big fan, I would suggest that. I've hot glued them into Bibles that don't have ribbons. Just, am I crafty? I don't know, you judge. Um, I would say so. Uh, (laughs) No, the answer is no. I should tell the truth in the pulpit. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I'm going to quit telling jokes and tell you where to go. Acts 9. So keep a finger here and turn with me to Acts chapter 9, if you would. Um, If you're still learning how to navigate your Bible, you're going to go roughly, in most Bibles, 150 pages to the left, okay? Acts is in front of John. What's that? It's left, right? Left way I'm looking at it. All right. Anyways, let's go to Acts chapter 9, okay? Bottom line is you're going to be between John and Romans, if you're still learning how to do this, which is totally okay. Don't feel bad about that. Just do your best. Okay, so we're going to look at verses 1 through 22 of Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, I think we got those up here. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Making them work extra hard this morning, too. Okay, so let's read this. So what, what, why am I doing this? Because this, we're going to put our eyes on exactly what Paul was referencing. He said, you guys have heard about my former conduct. You've heard about what happened with me. We're going to read what happened, okay? It's important for us to do that. Let's do that together. So we're going to look at Acts 9, 1 through 22. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, those were followers of Christ, 
both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... There fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed, were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When he says, you've all heard the story, that's what he's talking about, okay? That's what he's talking about. Now, interesting sidebar, don't get too super distracted on this, but we're staring right at it, so let me just point this out. How many of you have, have you, you've thought this, or maybe you've heard this, maybe you've heard it preached, that Paul, that, that God changed Saul's name to Paul. And many times we think it happened in the verses that we just read, right? How many of you have ever heard that? Paul the, or Saul the persecutor becomes Paul the apostle, right? Well, here's what's interesting. It's cons- any mention of Jesus changing his name is conspicuously missing from what we just read, isn't it? It is. So what, what gives? Well, the key is actually in Acts 13.9, where it says, Saul, also known as Paul, and then blah, 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 right? rips off about whatever it's talking about. Really what we have here, Paul, and there's debate on whether it's, it's a Roman or a Greek version of Saul, but Saul is a Hebrew name. If you remember, King Saul was the first king uh, that was appointed when Israel decided they wanted one. Uh, It didn't go too good, uh, like God told him it wouldn't. But in any case, that's a different story. So Saul is a Hebrew name. Paul is either a a Roman or a Greek variation of that. And so basically, and this was not uncommon when you had such a a big distinction between kind of the Hebrew people and everybody else, oftentimes people would have kind of a Hebrew name they rolled with when they were in that context, and then they'd have either a Roman or a Greek version of that when they were in other places. And so uh, Paul 
was, was uh, from Tarsus, which is a Roman province. So that's, that's really all there is to that. And you might say, oh, no, 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 no. God changed, God changed his name to Paul, Pastor Vince. I, I, know, I know that happened. Well, okay, but here's the problem. We see him referred to Saul 11 more times in the book of Acts after what we just read. Okay? And you might be going, oh, why does this matter? Why you got to... Why you got a dookie all over what is a really cool story and preaches well, right? Because I could get up here and get real fired up about like, Saul, new name, he's a new creation. He's so new in Christ that he needed a new name and it's Paul, right? Like that, that'll preach. I could wave a hanky on that one. Um, why is it important that we don't say stuff like that when the Bible doesn't say it? Because, well, then somebody comes along and actually reads what's said and we look like we don't know what we're talking about. Or we're just inventing stuff. Just because it preaches well doesn't mean it should be said. And you can't, from inference, weave into the story in your mind something that didn't really happen. And, and, and here's part of, let's, let's be compassionate on those that have thought this. It's not like God isn't in the practice of changing names, right? Abram to Abraham, right? Jacob to Israel, uh, uh, Simon to Peter, right? So it, it's not something that's uncommon for God to do, but we have no indication that that was the case here, okay? Uh, as, as the book of Acts moves on, you do see there's, there's a transition point where he's only then referred to as Paul, but that probably has more to do with the mission he was handed than, than some kind of big like stamp thing that God did saying, okay, now your name is Paul, right? Because what, what do we see happening here? We see specifically that God says, I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. So it would make sense if the bulk of his mission is to the Gentiles, that he's going to roll with that Paul version, either a Roman or Greek version of his name. Okay? Amen. Amen, amen. Yeah, that's good. So don't go out, don't go out preaching about a big, miraculous name conversion, especially thinking it's in Acts 9, because it's not. Okay? Now, um, now you, here's what happened because we went to Acts and we read that word for word. Now you've either seen for the first time or you've seen again the story of Paul getting sat back on his prideful rumpus by King Jesus. Okay, you've, I know you've seen it now because we've all looked at it together. So let's talk about why, in the context of what he's laying out in Galatians, why did he bring this up? Why did he bring it up while defending the fact that there is one true gospel? And, and, and that all false gospels should be ignored and their teachers be rejected. That's still the point he's making, Right? We started today in verse 11 uh, with, uh, let me flip back. We started today in verse 11. What does it say? For, I would have you know, brother, that, that connects it to everything that was being said before. So just because there's a, a kind of a heading break in our Bible doesn't mean the flow of thought has stopped. It, we're rolling right on through. So here's his point. Here's the point he's making. What I came teaching you, Galatians, right? He's, he's still coming off of, I, guys, I can't believe you're already being pulled away into these false doctrines because what I came teaching you, that salvation is by faith through grace in Christ alone, that teaching, it came from an encounter with the risen Jesus himself, okay? So, so this is not something that's been polluted or distorted by man. I got this directly from the Lord, okay? And, and while well, that's also a big claim, but... Really what he's saying in here is, if you were of a mind to question whether or not that's true, he goes on then to, when he's talking about, I was, 
I was an elite among my countrymen. Later in Acts, we find out Paul was a student under Gamaliel. That was like, he was like the premium Pharisee. Like everybody wanted to be Gamaliel's student. And Paul was like his protege, okay? So Paul was not just a Pharisee. He was not just somebody that was zealous for the Jewish faith. He was a rising star among them at the point when Jesus comes and interrupts him, okay? Not only that, he was so zealous for what he thought was God's work, he took the time to go get letters from the high priest so that he could drag Christians out of their homes, bind them, take them to Jerusalem, and have them put on trial and put to death for blasphemy. Okay? So what he's saying here is, you guys have heard that. I came preaching a message that came directly from Jesus. It, but it, if, if you, maybe you think I'm making that story up, but I would just invite you then to explain me. Not explain to me, explain me. How do you take a guy that was on that path? How do you take a guy that was in that place and him end up turning on a dime and becoming a preacher of the very message he was persecuting? Please explain that to me if Jesus didn't grab me on the road to Damascus, knock me to the ground, blind me, and then call me for his purposes. Come up with some other idea of how you get that. Because once you put it in that in those terms, it's like, well, that's a good point, Paul. <laughs> that is a great point. I, I don't know, right? Um, it doesn't leave much room for <clears throat> arguing back. Uh, and, and this, what I want us to see today is that this has powerful implications beyond Paul's specific use of this approach in his gospel defense to the Galatians. And what am I calling his approach? Going immediately to his personal testimony. I'm making big claims that there's one gospel by which men and women are saved, and if anybody preaches another one, they should be cursed. Big claims. How am I going to defend that? First of all, I'm reaching to the story of how Jesus saved me and what he saved me from. He, that's the first place he turned. That's instructive for us. There's something in that for us beyond just us being encouraged as the Galatians should have been by Paul's testimony. This also reaches into the way we conduct ourselves, the way we move forward on the mission that we have been called to, okay? I want to I call your attention to the fact that this is the beginning of Paul's argument. In subsequent weeks, we're going to keep working through Paul's argument, but this is after dropping big bombs about the reality, supremacy, and the beauty of the gospel. The very first place he goes in defending big statements like he made, wild stuff, is to say, let, let me tell you about what happened to me, Okay? And here's what I want us to see. Friends, your testimony, the story of how Jesus saved you and what he saved you from is the most powerful tool you have for sharing the good news about Jesus with people who have yet to figure out that he is worthy of their trust and that he's worthy of their worship. Why are you saying that? How'd you jump to me? Because Paul made big statements. And to back up the big statements, he went to his personal testimony first. He's got other stuff to say, and he will. But in the front of the line was, let me, let me remind you of my story. There's power in that, right? Because if, if the first thing he would have ran to was apologetics or trying to take him to Old Testament scripture and do a bunch of the other stuff he's going to do as we move forward, right? That stuff all has power, but, and, and, and truth always has power. But there's, man, there's something to you being able to look somebody in the eyes and say, Look, man, before we get down into this, this argument about whatever we're about to argue about, let, let me just tell you something. 
this is real for me. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what I have experienced. Okay? There's power in that. We need to be free to share our story. But there are, let's be honest, many hindrances that will try to stop us. The first I'm going to call to your attention is is shame and fear. Shame and fear. Paul's story should help those of us tempted to shrink back from telling our story for fear that people will reject us when they hear how broken or sinful we were, or even we still are in some cases. (laughs) Because though we may be justified by grace through faith in Christ, uh, we are still not fully sanctified yet, right? And sometimes being honest and open about the fact that I'm not perfect yet, I still got brokenness manifesting through my struggle with the flesh and with the forces of darkness, um, there can be a lot of fear around that, that people are going to reject you. If you're really honest about how broken or sinful you were, or you are, that people are going to push back from you. Look at, look at verse 13 with me again. Galatians 1, 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Guys, why, why am I pointing that out? Because if, we, if you're one that's tempted to shrink back in fear of rejection for being honest about how bad you were, guys, Paul was trying to destroy God's church. Like, I know y'all have done some old wicked stuff. I get that. No amens? No, no, no people done some wicked stuff in here? Okay, I have a lot, okay? But Paul was trying to destroy the church. He was literally going after the sons and daughters of God to put them in chains. He had letters of permission to bind people so that they could be put to death simply for calling on the name of Jesus. He stood by and approved and held the coats for those who stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He hated Jesus and hated his, he hated Jesus, you hear me? And he hated his people and he persecuted them all all of while he's doing that, he is proudly saying, I'm doing God's work. I'm killing these people for God. What? He was full of hate. And, and friends, I want you to know, I, I can relate to that. I remember the inner darkness of deciding to hate everyone so that no one could hurt me. I remember the violence and the anger that crouched just beneath the surface looking for someone to lash out at. And shame even tries to creep up as I I share this reality. Even in all of that, there was an element in which I, I enjoyed making people fear me. It was that bad. I didn't know how to relate to them any other way. I remember being a God mocker, taking a pocket New Testament that the Gideons handed me outside my school. Everyone know who the Gideons are? You ever been to a hotel? You pull out the drawer? A lot of their ministry, they're just, they're just trying to put Bibles in people's hands. So here come the Gideons. They got their boxes of Bibles. It was a little orange New Testament, pocket New Testament. They handed those out. I remember taking that thing, and, and I opened up the pages to about half, and there was, there was a big like, swarm of gnats flying around, and I took that. And I just kept smashing them inside the Bible pages. And I took it and cast it on the ground. That was what I thought of God's word. 
That's how much hope I thought it had to provide. It was good for crushing some bugs. And I was doing it intentionally to be disrespectful because there were some other kids there that, that grabbed a Bible and I wanted them to see. Guys, what hope could there be for a wretch like that? Or a violent persecutor of God's people like Paul? What hope could there be? Really? I mean, that's bad. <laughs> Even with sins this dark and heinous as a part of his story and a part of my story, verse 15 shines light and hope into the situation. Can we read that again, please, together? Put your eyes on it with me. What did he say? I persecuted the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was a big shot among my people, more zealous for ancestral traditions. But verse 15, but when God, who has set me apart even from my mother's womb, what's he saying? Oh man, I was in over my head. I didn't know. I didn't know he already knew. I didn't know he'd already done what he was going to do. There was no, what I was doing, I, I had no power in the situation from my mother's womb and called me even, called me through his grace when, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Everything we read in Acts is true. Everything we read here about Paul is true. Everything I told you about me is true, but verse 15 is true. When God decides, when it pleases him, he'll take you and he'll do with you whatever he wants. That's the hope for a wretch like Paul. That's the hope for a wretch like me. And if you're not there yet, I'm hoping you'll get there, but all of you should be able to say, that's the hope for a wretch like me. I had a long talk with a man this week. He was still buzzed uh, from being up all night drinking the night before. And uh, he was telling me that he knew he would die soon. And when he did, that God was going to send him to hell. And when I told him that I didn't, I, I, I'm trying to, I said, brother, I believe the Lord has put me in your life. Maybe he's put, he's, I've intersected your path today for this reason to tell you it doesn't have to go that way. As soon as I said that to him, he, he spent a whole bunch of time trying to convince me of how evil and wretched and unworthy he was to be in God's presence forever. So he tells me, I, I'm, I know I'm going to die soon. I've got pancreatic cancer and I'm drinking my way through it. That's how I'm doing it. And when I go, I know what's waiting for me. I know what God's going to do. And then when I said, brother, it doesn't, I, I'm telling you right now, the Bible teaches you've got another option. He then spent another 15 minutes doing his best to convince me I was wrong, that that didn't apply to him. So when he was done, I let him talk. I let him give me his full list of reasons why he was far too evil for God to do anything with him other than cast him into hell. Soon he was, as soon as he was done, I locked eyes with him. I said, listen to me. You are way closer to the kingdom of God than you think you are simply because you can explain to me for 15 minutes why you are so unworthy of God's presence. Pray for him, because when he left, I asked him to read the book of John, to make notes, to jot down questions, so the next time we get together, we can talk about it. <clears throat> I can't give you his name, but just pray for that man. 
Friends, I told him the question is, you, I said, you've got the first half of the gospel, bro. You're, you're closer to the kingdom than a whole lot of people because there's a whole lot of people that don't know how far they are from deserving what God offers in himself. You've got it. You've got that part. Now I just need you to see. The question is not, can you make up for all that evil? The question is, can you trust that Jesus did? I asked him, can you trust, man, that Jesus can save you and that he wants to? Man, that's a big deal. Some of you might think God can save, but you may not be sure he wants to, specifically when it comes to you. Or the worst iteration of that is sometimes we're unsure if he wants to with other people that we've decided don't deserve it. That's real dangerous territory. Get out of there immediately. Run. Humble yourself. Repent. <clears throat> I know that many of you are held back from sharing the hardest and darkest, darkest parts of your story for fear of rejection. But friends, it is these very things, those hardest and darkest parts, that show the goodness and mercy and power of our God to save. When Paul's making this defense of the one true gospel, he doesn't just say, well, I was a kind of a bad person. He says, no, you guys know. You know what I did. You know who I was. I persecuted the church to an immeasurable amount. That's what he says. I wanted them dead. He thought he was serving God, but he was hating him by hating his people. He hated Jesus. He hated the message of salvation by grace through faith. So please quit running from the hardest and darkest parts of your story. Turn, look to Jesus, and let him show you how to make those into a witness of how glorious it is that he loves you and has saved you and is using you. The second is shame and fear, but it's a, a, of a different sort. There are some of you, um, unlike me and a bunch of the uh, more rapscallions uh, of this crew, um, there, there are many of you that, that think because you have what you would, you would refer to as kind of a milk toast, vanilla, uh, not very exciting testimony, some of you worry, you got shame and fear on, on that side of the thing because you couldn't say to somebody, I was a persecutor of the church. You can't say to somebody like I have that I hurt people for fun and I liked it and I liked people to be afraid of me and I hated everybody. You, that's not your story. You maybe were raised in a Christian home. Maybe, thank God, you had parents that were teaching you about the gospel of grace and peace and the love of God from the jump, right? Amen. <laughs> Praise God for that. Um, Maybe, maybe you're somebody that hasn't ever had to go out into the world and drink from the gutter to figure out it, it, it doesn't taste as sweet as, as advertised, okay? <laughs> maybe that's you, but, but then, so you look, at, you look at Paul's testimony, you hear about testimonies like mine and others around you where, man, it, it's, it's, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about Jesus taking people from darkness to light, it's like, yup, that's easy to see, <laughs> right? Yup. Yeah, that's different, right? But you're like, you know, I don't, I didn't have any of that going on. Well, friends, we, we got to reframe the way we think about that. Listen to me really, really carefully. This is very important. You, those of you in that place, that you have shame and fear about sharing your testimony because you feel like it's kind of too plain or not drastic enough. You didn't do enough bad stuff for it to be interesting. You literally have the most powerful testimony of all. Why am I saying that? Because 
you were saved from the most wretched and heinous sin of all. And what is that sin? It's believing that your righteousness was enough for you to stand before a holy and perfect God on your own. You were in the clutches of the potential of the greatest sin a man or woman commit. Because of your morality, because of your kind of vanilla testimony, because there was no stark contrast in terms of observable behavior, but what can happen in the heart of a person that's generally good is they can think them and their moralism can march up to the throne of God and present themselves on their own merits. Whoo, buddy, you want to talk about pride. You want to talk about a sin worthy of damnation. That's the one. To walk up to a perfect holy God and say, here I am. Worthy of all you have to give. I'm hide behind something. If I'm next in line and that's the way you walk up, I'm looking for a corner to get around. No. But how many people get trapped in that lie of moralism? And so if that's your testimony, you were generally a good kid or you've for the most part been a good person and everybody around you Maybe if they don't understand the gospel, would have assumed, oh, well, that's a pretty good Christian. They don't cuss. I've never seen them drunk. You know, they're not out, you know, doing what people do at nighttime with other people that's sinful, you know, that type of stuff, right? I, I, none of, they got none of these observable behaviors that everyone, you know, those, that's the stuff Christians say don't do, right? They're, they're probably, and that, and that was part of the argument of the guy I was talking to the other day, man. He's like, I said, bro, I need the same grace you need as I'm trying to explain the gospel. He's like, no, you don't. I watch you. You, God, you're already in with God. It's like, well, yeah, man, because I got, but I had to get to the realization you are at right now first and realize the way that I am going to get in with him is by knowing how much I need grace and mercy. To be saved, let me, that maybe got a little bit scattered. Let me try to make it really concise. To be saved from the sin of moralism is to be saved from the most wretched, wretched and egregious offense you can make to a holy, perfect God. Amen. I don't know if I believe that. Go read the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Jesus tells a story about a pious Pharisee, somebody who observably, what everybody would have said looking at his life is, that's a holy man, okay? He's in the temple, and then you got a publican, a tax collector in the temple, a guy that everybody knew had sold out for money, was robbing people. They were known as thieves. They, they were hated by everybody, sinners who, who were basically seen as, as uh, betrayers of, of the people of Israel, okay? Nobody liked them, worse sinners anybody could think of. You got the publican in the temple. You got the Pharisee in the temple. The Pharisee's in the back saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you so much. So the prayer started out good. Thank you. That's a good start to your prayer. But then it goes bad. Thank you for not making me like these other sinners. Lord, thank you that I'm holy and different and I do this and that and the other thing. So Jesus explains that and then he says, the the tax collector, he's in there so vexed by his sin that he's beating his breast, can't even look up as he declares, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what Jesus' summary of that very short story was? One of those guys went home righteous before God that day. Any guesses? Wasn't the Pharisee. Stop thinking your testimony is of no value. 
if what you've been saved from is the temptation to moralism because of your goodness, you've been, <laughs> the Lord snatched you out of the very clutches of hell by pouring his grace and truth into you and showing you that you need him as much as anybody else does. Amen. The last thing I'm going to give you, the last hindrance is it's fear and shame of, of yet another kind. There's a fear of being rejected by family and friends, coworkers, because of a bold stand for the gospel. And we need to acknowledge this. The Bible says the gospel is foolishness to the unbelieving. It doesn't make a lot of sense that what God has done here is made us, and then we betray him, and then he starts to unpack this plan from Genesis 3 all the way up to Matthew 1, where God himself through Jesus Christ, the second person of the eternal trinity, is born to a teenage girl in Bethlehem in a barn, <laughs> grows up and allows himself to be murdered in our place as the, the final and sacrificial lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. If you're, if you're just starting out with like how to approach God, that whole thing just seems pretty weird. And taking a bold stand for the truth of the one and only gospel, it can feel intimidating. And why am I saying that? Well, we also see a touch of that in Paul's testimony. So I read you 13 where he talks about how bad of a persecutor he was. But 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. This is another reason why Paul's conversion story, it lends credibility to the reality and the power of the gospel. Okay? Why? Because not only was Paul persecuting the church and then something happened and now he's doing the exact opposite, but he also was, he had to, if, if he was just making this up, what, what was in it for him? He was already on the all-star track among his own people, among the Pharisees. It wasn't like Paul was like this kind of bummer student that nobody really you know, liked very much. Paul was the man and rising. His star was rising. What explains a guy in that position all of a sudden turn around and saying, all of that is garbage. <laughs> Everything I was saying there is wrong. Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God. Well, I would say uh, the Lord Jesus probably actually met him on the road to Damascus. <laughs> Struck him blind and uh, the rest we read. Okay? <clears throat> basically what I'm calling attention to here is the fact that for some of you, there's, there's a shame and a fear about sharing your testimony because you feel like it's so bad. There's some of you that have fear and shame about your testimony because you think that it's too good. There's some of you that have fear and shame about your testimony because you're intimidated by what people are going to think when you go all in and boldly say, Jesus Christ is the only reason I have any hope now or for eternity. There's a fear and shame that comes with what reactions might be. And friends, um, perfect love casts out all fear and shame. And uh, if, you, if, you haven't, if you haven't received from the help from the Holy Spirit yet, the kind of powerful endowment of anointing that we see happening in the life of Paul to overcome all these fame or uh, shame and, and fear hurdles at least I'm asking you to start praying for that kind of help. 
so that whatever shame and fear would keep you back from sharing your story, that that would be knocked down so that you can. Because it's a powerful way that we walk out the mission he's given us to share this gospel with the world. Regardless of the details, regardless of which way you are most tempted to back away from sharing your story, um, I would encourage you, I, I would go farther than that, I would implore you to, to prayerfully practice sharing your story. To prayerfully practice sharing your story. I want to encourage each of you to have a, a 30 second, a three minute, in a 30-minute version of your story, ready, on deck, like, like a sword you can pull out of its sheath for the right situation. And why am I saying that? Because you may only get 30 seconds with the cashier at the grocery store, but a door may open for you to speak of the wonders of what Christ has done in your life. You need a 30-second version. That's not the 30-minute version, okay? That's bad evangelism. If you hold up the grocery line for 30 minutes with your story because you don't know how to summarize it, now everybody in the grocery store hates Christians like Paul did before Jesus saved him, okay? So have a 30-second version of how Jesus saved you and what he saved you from. Have a three-minute version because you're going to have interactions where you don't only have 30 seconds, but you also don't have 30 minutes. And have that version that if somebody is, enough curiosity has been piqued because of what God is doing in your life and how it is you're walking in the light as he is in the light, you get that chance to sit down and have a long-form conversation. Have that 30-minute sharing of your story ready where you can add more details and you can, you can get down into the nitty-gritty of it. A 30-second, a three-minute, and a 30-minute version, ready to go. And also, by the way, I want to make sure I address those of you in here that in case you're a brand new or a newer believer, um, you might be thinking, man, well, uh, you know, you told us that Paul, by the time he wrote Galatians, you know, he'd probably been, been saved about 15 years. So I don't know about all this stuff that you're saying about, you know, us going out on mission and telling our story and like actually being a part of trying to share the gospel with others. I'm, I'm brand new, so I don't know if that really applies to me yet. Let me just remind you of verses 19 and 20. We read this in Acts 9 earlier. Don't, don't try to turn there again. Uh, unless you're already there, that's fine. But let, let me just remind you of how the story went for Paul, right? He gets blinded. God sends Ananias to get him, brings him in. Uh, they, they pray for him. He receives the Holy Spirit. The scales fall off of his eyes. Then it says this. Now for several days, talking about Paul, he was with the disciples. So for, for several days, Paul chills out, okay? He eats something, like kind of gets his bearings here. I was blind for three days. That was intense, you know, all that. So several days, he's with the disciples who were in Damascus. Verse 20. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Okay, here's what I want you to hear. If you're a brand new Christian today, I get that. You might be intimidated like, dude, you're saying words. I don't even know what they mean. What, why do you want me out here trying to tell people about Jesus? Because here's the bottom line. If you are a believer, if God has grabbed you by his grace and transformed your heart, if you're at the very baby first steps of this thing, here's what you know. Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he's changed you and he's done something miraculous in you. That's all you need to know. Start there. Because there's a bunch of people who don't know that. Immediately, you can start to tell the parts of your story you understand of how God has done what he's doing. I know some of it may not fully even make sense yet. We'll get there. But also don't sideline yourself because you feel like you're unqualified or you're a brand new believer. 
I get, Paul took several days, so I'm going to give you that, okay? You got three days. <laughs> but then I want to see you out there saying Jesus Christ is the Son of God every single chance you get. Amen. Woo! It's Reformation Day. Did you guys think it was going to be calm today? Of course not. Hecky no. All right. Now, the second part of these verses... Um, it starts the second half of verse 16. The majority of our time was there, okay? Um, I know you guys got to get ready for trick-or-treat tonight, so I'm going to get you out of here. Um, the second part of these verses, it starts in, in, in the second half of 16, like I said. So, uh, it says, to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's, that's the end of that. Then he, goes, then he says, okay. But I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, okay? So he's saying, he starts off with, guys, here's part of the problem. You accepting this false gospel the Judaizers are bringing, you're abandoning God because this is his message. And part of why I'm telling you I know that's true is because I got it from Jesus himself. Jesus popped up on the road to Damascus and gave me this gospel, okay? Oh, you don't believe that? You think I'm making that up? Here's some reasons why you shouldn't. I was a guy killing these guys, and now I'm one of these guys, right? You, you with me on the flow of thought? And that, but now he's picking up again on this idea that here's, here's, here's why you need to be real careful about deviating from this true gospel at all, because this came from the Lord. And I didn't, when, when I got it, I didn't even immediately go to the other apostles up in Jerusalem. I went and spent time with the Lord himself in Arabia, okay? That's, that's really what he's getting to. Um, now, <clears throat> here's, here's what I want to make sure I call your attention to, because we could get some wrong-headed ideas here because of how Paul points out the, the direct revelation that he received from Jesus. We've got to be real careful about this, okay? Because Paul is defending the purity of the one true gospel, that it came from Jesus himself, but this was not a different gospel than the other apostles were already preaching. You got me on that? That's huge, okay? The difference at this point was who it was going to be preached to, okay? So why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus grab Paul off by himself, and why did he pull him aside Okay, to teach it. Why didn't he just send him to the guys that he had put in charge of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? Remember that? When Jesus said, all right, you guys wait for power, then you're going to go be my witnesses all around everywhere, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Like he had assigned his disciples, had made them his apostles. Why didn't Jesus pop up and say, Paul, go to Jerusalem and listen to Peter and James and John and what they got to say? Why didn't he do that? Well, it wasn't because he was teaching them a different gospel. He needed to teach him how it applied to far more than just the physical descendants of Abraham. Okay, because at this point, the 11 apostles, they were focused primarily at this point in getting the gospel to the people of Israel. And some of that was just geography. That's where they were when Jesus ascended and said, all right, get to work, right? So, but we find out, we find out later in Galatians that Peter was actually still struggling with some of the same feelings that the Judaizers were teaching. Okay? So there was still, it was still a little difficult for these guys that were all Hebrews, all these guys that, the, the, the original 11, man, they were all of the nation of Israel. And it was still tough for them to, like, really get, all right, but 
Like all these promises you made, Lord, in the Old Testament, like we see a bunch of that fulfilled in Messiah, but it really seemed like that was all for Israel. What, what are we talking about all these Gentiles for? It was still just not quite, they, they weren't totally getting it yet. So Jesus grabs Paul, takes him to Arabia, gives him the same gospel he gave those guys, but, and it's interesting, how long does he say he was in Arabia? For three years, also roughly the time the disciples rolled with Jesus during his ministry. I don't know, I don't think it's a magic number or anything, I just find it interesting. But during those three years, he's, he's, teaching, he's teaching Paul a different application of the gospel than what the rest were, were uh, working on, right? In terms of dealing with, with their countrymen first. So, here, but here's what Paul did not do, okay? Yes, Jesus did pull him off to the side. Yes, Jesus did pull him off and specifically train him to be his apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, absolutely. But what Paul did not do was get to the end of, of three years of that training uh, and just go out on his own without any submission to, agreement with, or spiritual covering from the leaders that Jesus had established before him. Right? He didn't. See, see here's the problem. Some of you hear what Paul, you, you hear what Paul says in these verses and you're going to be tempted to go rip off with whatever special revelation you think you got from the Lord, and you're just going to quote the second half of verse 16. I could see it. Like, I got this word from the Lord. You know, does it line up with the Bible? Oh, I, I don't know. It's from the Lord, though. Um, and, and, and you're going to go, oh, and, and I, you know, Paul didn't consult with flesh and blood. I'm, I don't need to consult with you. Well, okay, but here's, here's the real serious problem with that. Or maybe you've heard somebody talk this way before. Maybe it's not you. God, I hope not. But we need to be able to help folks with this if they get caught up in this confusion. Because this is what the devil likes to do. He likes to tell people stuff and, and come as an angel of light. They think, they think that it's God. And then, and then they get this idea in their head that, oh, well, Paul, God pulled Paul to Arabia by himself. And I'm like that. And, and Paul didn't have to submit to anybody else's authority or blah, 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 blah. Well, here's the thing. I did not, and they might try to quote the bottom half of verse 16 to you. He didn't consult with flesh and blood, but here's the thing. There's a really important word in there. It's really important. It says immediately. He said, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Does it say I never consulted with flesh and blood? The answer is no, love city. It doesn't say that he never did. It says he didn't do it immediately. So then what happened? In verse 18, then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. <laughs> so, Paul spends his time with Jesus, is trained to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Does he run off to Thessalonica or does he run off to Ephesus and just go start doing stuff because he knows everything and I had a special revelation from the Lord? No. He goes to Jerusalem to the established spiritual authority that Jesus had put in place to get to know them and for, to make sure the gospel he was about to go preach to people was the same one Jesus had given them. Albeit, broadening the application to those who were not within the household of Israel even more fully. And, and, and that's part of why Paul is real ticked off at the Judaizers. Like, he's the one, Jesus said, you're my apostle of the Gentiles. Then these guys come around trying to say, no, no, you gotta, you gotta be like these guys and, and grace isn't enough. Paul's, Paul is not gonna play with that mess, okay? Uh, here's one, one other thing we need to remember. <clears throat> There, there were witnesses to the original encounter with Jesus, okay? Paul didn't roll up into Damascus one day like, I had an encounter with Jesus, and, 
and he said a bunch of stuff to me. No, nobody else saw it, though. I know everything that he said, though, so just listen to me, right? Is that what happened? No, he had people with him who stood astonished and dumbfounded, mouth gaping open is basically what it says, and then they had to lead him by the hand to Damascus. And then we have another believer receiving a vision, Ananias, from the Lord saying, hey, Paul's in the city, I want you to go pray for him so that he can see and receive the Holy Spirit, and I'm about to do some stuff with him. Okay, so there was, there was other people involved that could confirm what Paul was saying. Paul didn't just have some kind of fairy dust magic experience in the woods by himself, get to pop up and say, now I'm the apostle, everybody listen to me, and nobody else can question anything I say ever. That's not how that works. That, why, why, why would God have those safeguards? That's how we avoid stuff like, uh, well, let's think of an example. Let's think of Joseph Smith type stuff, right? Where the angel Maroney shows him some golden plates in a stone chest in Manchester, New York in the 1800s. And this was what all of Christianity was missing. This is the real truth. And he's all by himself and only him and Maroney know about it. But trust him. And you get an entire false religion just and a bunch of people deceived. That's not what happened here. When Jesus popped up and knocked Paul down, people saw it. There was other witnesses confirming it. And then Paul receives this training to be the apostle to the Gentiles from Jesus. But before he goes off in in his own authority and in his own specialness or whatever, he comes to Jerusalem and has a conversation with and submits to the leadership that Jesus had established in Peter, James, John, and the other apostles. Okay? Now, I don't know how to judge your faces. Were you guys like, ooh, I can't wait to get a special revelation so I can do whatever the heck I want. I don't know if that's where you're at. And I just burst your bubble or I'm talking fast because I know I'm taking a long time. I don't know what happened, but this is really important. Okay. Cause there's a bunch of people that run around out here. Oftentimes, Oh, I was going to crack something. I'm going to leave that alone. There's a lot of people that run out here, call themselves apostle this or whatever that, and getting a lot of special words from the Lord and nobody can confirm it. Nobody can deny it. I'm not sure. Boy, that's risky. I'd be real slow without some kind of confirmation. It seems like God does things decently in order when he's going to make big calls like to his people. He's going to make this big pivot about establishing this apostle with a mission to take his gospel to the Gentiles. Other people were around. It wasn't just one dude with a, oh, look, I'm God's special messenger now. Listen to me. And by the way, tie to my ministry. Those are the ones that should be accursed. Those are false gospel preachers and wolves. Ooh, should you say that? I don't know. Martin Luther nailed a bunch of stuff to the Wittenberg church and Galatians is right here. So what? I don't know. Probably. I don't, I don't have a hammer and nails. So, you know, I didn't go that far today. So be thankful. I could have hammered some stuff today. We could have went all the way there. All right, so what? Um, in verses 18 to 21, uh, th- then I went. Okay, so let, let's finish this up. 20 through, 22 through 24. Let, let's read that together one more time. 22 through 24. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Okay? The big encouragement I'm trying to pull out to you here today, two things. One, we should be energized and encouraged 
and our faith should be challenged by Paul's story. Okay? Paul's testimony is, is it's magnificent. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And it should encourage us on multiple levels. But it's, I don't just want us to be encouraged by Paul's story today. I want us to see the instruction to us flowing from this example that when coming to preach and to defend the truth of the one gospel of Jesus Christ, that to reach for your story is a powerful part of how you're going to be able to do that. And so I want you to understand, God wants your story to be used for his glory, but that's the key here. See, this thing doesn't end with him saying, and everybody kept saying how great I am. And everybody kept saying how wonderful I am. No, what... And they were glorifying God because of me. And they were glorifying God because of me. Here's what's super important. I want to encourage you guys toward, as you prayerfully learn how to tell your story. The way Paul told his story, the way Paul made sure his story was related was in the end, people were glorifying God, not him. The way he told the story, he made sure people knew it was the power of God, it was the love of God, it was the mercy of God, it was the greatness of God. It was the reason he was now a preacher of the gospel instead of a persecutor of the ones who believed it. Please keep that in mind because there is a temptation, even if we start with good motives in trying to craft our story and trying to spend time knowing how to tell my story in 30 seconds, in three minutes, in 30 minutes, there's this temptation, there's, this, there's this, this sin that kind of crouches and waits for the opportunity where we can, become, we can become self-promoters as we tell the story. But part of what helps us remember and stay out of that is remember that, that my story is really God's story. Like, I don't have a story without him. So let's make sure we remember who the hero is. When you tell your story, friends, make sure in the end, they're not clapping for you. They're clapping for the one who saved you, clapping for the one who made you, clapping for the one who gives you hope now and for eternity. Friends, my hope today is that we be encouraged in the gospel, encouraged by Paul's story, but also encouraged to be free, to be free to tell our stories. And that would be for our good, but most of all, it would be for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for Paul's story. Thank you that your word is here for us, God. Without your word, we would be lost. Without your word, we'd be scrambling, trying to figure out who we are and who you are, how we should relate to you, what our purpose is in this world, but you have given us in your word clear direction and instruction, encouragement, and oftentimes correction. Lord, help us to humbly receive all of that knowing that all that you have to give, all that you seek to pour into us, it's for our good. But God, thank you that everything that is for our good because of your love for us, it is also for your glory because you are the greatest good. You are the only hope we have now and for eternity. And so God, I pray over every single person within the sound of my voice, I ask God that if today wasn't enough, if this time in your word and looking at the effect that Paul's story had on his ability to defend your gospel, to preach your gospel with conviction, if right now they still sit unmotivated to craft and to understand how to share their story, Lord, I ask that you would continue by the power of your Holy Spirit, work in their hearts a desire. Lord, we know that us telling our story of how you saved us and what you saved us from, 
It's one of the major ways you've called us to go into this world and declare you're worthy to be trusted and worthy to be worshiped. We love you. Thank you for all you've done and all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.